Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another well, Queering the Air episode with Tan Hong and JT, your source for critical commentary and perspective from members of the queer community. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the struggles of queer Palestinians who live under occupation and conflict, which is in fact the longest conflict in the Middle East in modern times. We will also cover topics of pinkwashing and anti-Semitism, um, interviewing two in- intellectual heavyweights, Said Atshan and Jordi Silverstein. Um, over the weekend, I've been privileged to speak to Said Atran, who is a member of Al-Khaos, a Palestinian LGBT advocacy group. He's received his PhD in Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. Since then, he's been a lecturer in Peace and Justice Studies at Tufts University, postdoctoral fellow in International Studies at Brown University, and currently is a visiting assistant professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Swarthmore College, Pennsylvania. Um, but most importantly, he's born in Palestine and lived under occupation. Hello, you're listening to Creating the Air at 3CR Community Radio. We've got Professor Said Achan, who is a visiting assistant professor at um, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. So thank you, Said, for, ha- for being with us here today. It's my pleasure. Excellent. So this is absolutely unprecedented. We've, um, we've always heard about you know, the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And um, I'm pleased to be hosting this interview. Perhaps maybe we can start with um, ta- talking a little bit more about the history of um, Al-Khaos and your involvement um, with the organization. Oh, definitely. So the queer Palestinian movement is at least a decade old now. Um, I'm really proud of its growth. Um, there's, there's still much more to do, but there's always more to do. And um, the leading queer Palestinian organization is Al-Khaos, which means rainbow in Arabic, and it works across, um, you know, Israel and the West Bank, where there are 
significant Palestinian populations. There are I'll call it activism throughout the area. Um, I am, and I cannot speak officially for Encode, so on behalf of Encode, you know, I'm not the director, uh, I'm not on the board, but I am a member, and I've been a member for a number of years now, and I um, am very much part of the movement. So um, I'm proud of what we've built and how we've developed over the past decade. Um, I just wanted to also ask, are there other LGBT organizations in Palestine or, or, or in the Palestinian territories? Yes, yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, the, the reason there's a conflict is because the Zionists will often refer to all the land as Israel, and Palestinians will refer to all of the land as Palestine. So for Palestinians, even those who are in Israel or in the occupied territories, in the Palestinian territories, um, we see ourselves all as coming from the same place, which is historic Palestine. So um, within historic Palestine, there are a number of queer organizations and initiatives um, one is Al-Qaus, which we just talked about briefly. Another is Aswat, which means Voices in Arabic, which is a queer women Palestinian organization. Uh, there's also an initiative called Pink Watching Israel, which is queer Palestinian activists who are responding to pinkwashing, which is Israel's propaganda, and trying to sell Israel as this gay haven to detract attention away from Israel's gross violations of Palestinian human rights. And there's also the initiative called PQBDS, which is Palestinian Queers for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And these are LGBTQ Palestinians who are um, part of the global civil society call for a boycott of Israeli institutions that are complicit in the occupation. Excellent. And does Al-Qaus have connections or alliances with Palestinian organizations that are not, not necessarily LGBT-specific? Uh, yeah, Al-Qaus has, I think, done a good job at reaching out to Palestinian civil society more broadly and building alliances and partnerships and connections, some formal and some informal, um, with, for example, human rights organizations, with women's organizations, with uh, mental health practitioners, so that, you know, when a therapist has, you know, a young queer person, that they, they will, you know, interact with them in a much more compassionate manner or when time comes for there to be a campaign that there are human rights advocates who can be uh, on our side or when you know um the palestinian queer movement wants to build connections and alliances with the queer feminist movement so with the feminist so the queer movement and the feminist movement coming together that's really important because the queer issue is also a feminist issue. So, and Coast has, that's definitely on the strategic agenda. Uh, and, and there's still work to do in this regard, but I think and Coast is in the right direction. Excellent. Um, also, is there um, anything specific about the struggles that queer Palestinians face under occupation? Well, queer Palestinians, like their straight counterparts um, living under Israeli military occupation, face the same sets of conditions and oppression and structural forces. So, you know, obviously, the you know, the wall, for example, the Israeli wall that really devastates Palestinian territory in the West Bank, affects straight and queer people. Similarly, there's no pink magic gate from the wall, you know, that's for queer people, or the many checkpoints, you know, there's no VIP lane for queer people, or when the Israeli military bulldozes someone's home, there's no check, you know, oh, is there a queer child in this house? Okay, you have a queer son, we won't bulldoze your home anymore. So, you know, queer Palestinians face the same kind of systematic 
uh, sets of discrimination and violations of rights of all other Palestinians. I think that some of the unique um, elements are when, for example, queer Palestinians sometimes can be entrapped by the Israeli security services. But we see that also happening sometimes with women, also with Palestinians who are ill and are in desperate need of medical treatment. For example, in Gaza, being pressured by the Israeli mm-hmm. security services to become collaborators, informants, spies on their own families and communities. This is really, really devastating. But we see this phenomenon happening in the queer community as well, although it's taboo and a bit stigmatized to discuss. But And obviously, queer Palestinians must live under you know, a traditional Palestinian society that's patriarchal and misogyny, I think, is global. It's all around the world. Mm-hmm. But also homophobia, right? So homophobia is also universal. It's all around the world. Palestinian society is no exception. The Israeli occupation and colonial context exacerbates that homophobia. But nonetheless, homophobia is unacceptable. And so queer Palestinians have to face the, you know, numerous sets of, of oppression and layers of silencing that they have to work around. So the queer Palestinian movement, by and large, sees itself as linking the struggles for national liberation, you know, liberating Palestine from Israeli occupation, granting Palestinians equal rights with the queer liberation struggle so that queer Palestinians can lead lives of dignity and have autonomy over their bodies, their sexuality, and that we build a a Palestinian society that is pluralistic and, and accepting and embracing of gender and sexual differences. Absolutely. And um, we also rarely hear about how queer Palestinians live, um, but we know how queers everywhere else, um, you know, survive living, being closeted. Um, Can you perhaps describe a fun night out in the life of a queer Palestinian living under occupation? Like, what would that look like? Well, one of the things that El Coast does is organizes these monthly parties. Mm -hmm. Um, these, These parties are, can attract, you know, hundreds of people, really. So you have gay, lesbian, you know, queer Palestinians mm-hmm. coming together and dancing the night away. It's Arabic music all night. And it's really a fun space. It's also a safe space, you know, photographing, photography is not allowed and people by and large feel quite comfortable there. And it's a way for the community to come together and people really look forward to these parties. Uh, and cost also uh, charges, you know, a basic rate for entrance for these parties. But it's nice because the cumulative income revenue from that, from those parties over the course of the year, ends up being you know, a significant part of Pulse's yearly budget. So it's a way to not rely completely on, uh, you know, international aid or given the NGOization of Palestinian society. Um, so yeah, and also queer Palestinians um, who have the courage to really accept who they are and to to meet other people who are like them, you know, often do come together and do create alternative spaces for themselves. Uh, unfortunately, this has to be underground mm-hmm. uh, to, to a large extent, but at the same time, people do carve out spaces for joy, for pleasure, for, and, and all, not just queer Palestinians, all Palestinians laugh, they, they, they celebrate graduations, they celebrate weddings, they, you know, we joke, like we, you know, we have symptoms of humor, like we're normal people like everyone else. And even though there's the occupation and it can be quite brutal, people do try to make the best of every day and make the best of life and, 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 and struggle for normalcy. And that struggle for normalcy is very much, we see it as an act of resilience and resistance. We often talk about existence being 
resistance. So Palestinians, just by existing, just by staying put on one's ancestral land and 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 defying the occupation and not allowing one's spirit to be crushed, attending to one's olive groves, you know, going to school, going to work, um, each those ordinary acts carry extraordinary meaning. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take a short break and um, get back to our interview with Syed. You're listening to Aquarium the App. So, wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter. Long live Palestine, long live Gaza. Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza. This is for the child that is searching for an answer. Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter. Long live and also often queers of color or, or who have any form of diversity um, are exoticized when they're out in the scene or made to have political discussion and educate people when they just want to have fun. So what's, what's life like being a Palestinian queer or a queer Palestinian in the United States um, queer scene? Well, I think that, you know, it's, we end up being a token, you know, so, you know, in many ways I have to be an ambassador and I have to re- represent Palestinians on one hand, you know, LGBTQ people on another hand, and then queer Palestinians. And so, you know, as a Palestinian, the U.S. It can be challenging because Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. aid in the world. Exactly. Israel receives more U.S. aid than all of Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean combined. So in some ways, the U.S. can be the most anti-Palestinian racist country in many ways. But increasingly, there are more and more and more uh, pockets of solidarity and growing Palestinian solidarity movement in the U.S. So, you know, on one hand, you have to deal with certain dehumanization, racism. um, But on the other hand, there's this exciting uh, progress that's being made on that front. As a queer person as well, you know, homophobia also exists in the U.S. I mean, there's a very large number, unfortunately, for example, of trans women of color being killed, you know, across the United States in urban centers. So although we're making tremendous progress vis-a-vis LGBTQ rights, if we look at the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriages across the U.S., that's, I think, a wonderful example. So on one hand, we celebrate these victories, but on the other hand, you know, we also have to confront homophobia. And then finally, you know, what does it mean to be a queer Palestinian? People have all sorts of identities, uh, sorry, you know, impressions of what this identity means, fantasies, and we have to refute a lot of the pinkwashing discourse when people say, for example, oh, you're queer Palestinian, you must really want to go to Tel Aviv. We heard that <laughs> it's a gay haven and they provide refuge to gay Palestinians. And we have to say, actually, that's not true. And many of the queer Palestinians are, who find themselves, for example, from the West Bank in Tel Aviv are chased after by the Israeli security services and then back to their communities, etc. So there's a lot of educating that we have to do um, also, this notion that Israel is a gay haven, we have to make it very clear, you know, there's a range of experiences in Israel. If you are white, Ashkenazi, European, Jewish, Israeli male who's very wealthy, and you live in Tel Aviv, life can be pretty good. Yeah. But if you're Ethiopian, black, Jewish, Israeli woman who's lesbian and poor, living in Tel Aviv, life is much more precarious. And, you know, similarly, there's a range of queer subjectivities in Palestinian society. On one end of the spectrum are those who are, you know, maybe threatened with violence from their families, and it can be really horrible. But on the other end of the spectrum are experiences like mine, where I was met with love and acceptance from my community, family, um, you know, neighborhood, etc. So there's a whole range of experiences. 
And that range of experiences in both societies gets flattened out by the pinkwashing propaganda. So we really, really have to do a lot of work in trying to raise people's consciousness and helping them understand the issue in a more nuanced manner. And we also hear of how um, you've actually mentioned earlier about um, boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions. Um, so uh, one of the things we hear, um, at least in Melbourne, is that um, BDS can be damaging to Palestinian to the Palestinian cause um, as these companies hire Palestinians. And, you know, 90% of Gaza live under the poverty line. Um, do you think you can expand on that? And um, I've also, can you, can you explain what is um, queer BDS? Okay, those are great questions. Thanks so much. So, in 2005, Palestinian civil society issued the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. We have to be clear not, you know, to spell out the acronym because sometimes people think it's bondage, domination, and sadomasochism. So, we have to be clear, like what we mean by this um, this acronym. So, it's boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And basically, 170 Palestinian civil society institutions representing really a broad range of Palestinian organizations came together and called on the world to boycott Israeli institutions, not individuals, institutions that are complicit in the occupation of apartheid. And this is very much modeled after the anti-apartheid boycott movement, solidarity movement that emerged from South Africa. And so Palestinian civil society is asking people of conscience to refrain from investing in Israeli companies, organizations, institutions, um, and that people withdraw their own complicity in, in our suffering. And it's been really heartwarming to see that, you know, people of conscience all around the world are responding to this call, just like we saw with black South Africans in the context of their apartheid system. So that's really heartwarming. Now, the Palestinian queers for boycott, divestment and sanctions is really a call from within the queer Palestinian movement calling on LGBTQ people around the world and others to, to also join the movement and to respect the call for boycott. And so, you know, it's very much like trying to cultivate transnational queer reciprocal solidarity. And we see that, um, you know, in a really exciting way. You know, people can YouTube um, a video if you just search for 2012 London Pride Israeli Apartheid. You can see, for example, you know, British queer activists going to the Pride Parade with Palestinian flags supporting boycott, you know, speaking out against pinkwashing. That's just one heartwarming video, but it's one of many, many examples where queer communities around the world are now forging these relationships with queer Palestinians um, in this solidarity struggle. Once Israel, you know, provides Palestinians with equal rights and it ends the occupation, then there would be no, no there, there's no need for boycott anymore. And of course, the call for boycott would then be lifted. Absolutely. And um, so I've only got three minutes left. And last question. Um, also, who dubbed Tel Aviv as the world's gay capital? I don't think gays have a capital. Um, what do you think of this global pinkwashing campaign? And what does it mean for queer Palestinians? Well, the problem with the pinkwashing is that, you know, not, not only is it a deliberate strategy on the part of the Israeli state, which is marshalling millions and millions of dollars for these propaganda purposes to detract attention away from gross violations of Palestinian rights. So, it's, you know, it can be for some people who are gullible, uh, a very effective tool in thinking, oh, look, Tel Aviv, it's a bubble. Look, Israel is such a gay haven. Okay, let's not look at, you know, the gay pride parade in Jerusalem that happened this year, in which a right-wing, you know, Orthodox Jewish Israeli man um, stabbed, you know, people and killed one 16-year-old Israeli girl. 
And he did this right after being released from prison, after having served in prison for 10 years, after in 2005, stabbed people at the Jerusalem Pride Parade at that same exact moment, right? So he's been released and then does the same thing 10 years later. So, you know, we don't hear any of this. And so what happens is that for queer Palestinians, our suffering as, as Palestinians gets erased and rendered invisible using the pinkwashing discourse. But then our voices get co-opted because then the pinkwashers say that we are part of the Zionist project and we are benefiting from Israeli colonialism, which we're victims of that doubly as queers and as Palestinians. But it's very exciting that Palestinian queers are reclaiming our voices in Palestine, all around the world. And I thank you for providing me with this opportunity. This is another shining light um, in which people of conscience are giving platforms for queer Palestinians to get our voices heard directly. Absolutely. So thank you, Said, for giving us your time. Um, really, it was a it was a pleasure to have you on the studio. Um, My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Violence can destroy families. I decided one day that I could not stand having my children witnessing more of the physical, verbal and emotional abuse. While I was facing issues of family violence, I heard about a service available to assist people in my situation called InTouch. I called InTouch and spoke with someone in my language. InTouch gave me the support I needed. Thanks to the people at InTouch, I've been able to rebuild a better life for my family. If you need advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion in your language by calling 1-800-755-988 or search InTouch Multicultural Centre online. InTouch, brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. Hi, I'm Tristan Taramino and you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR. Welcome back to Queering the Air. That's 855 on your AM dial. Um, so the interview we just heard was with Saeed Achan, and the song in between was Long Live Palestine by Loki. So to, to explore this further, we're now joined by Jordi Silverstein, who is on the executive of the Australian Jewish Democratic Society, also known as AJDS, a historian at Melbourne University, author of Anxious Histories, Narrating the Holocaust and Jewish Communities mm. at the Beginning of the 21st Century, and co-editor in the Shadows of Memory, The Holocaust and the Third Generation. Jordi Silverstein, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess maybe to start off with, could you tell us a little bit more um, about AGDS and your involvement in the organization? Yeah, sure. So AGDS was started in 1984. Um, so it's a bit of a slightly getting older organization. Um, and the tagline from the beginning was a Jewish voice amongst progressives and a progressive voice amongst Jews. So it's always tried to do that work of you know, being um, holding its place within multiple communities. Um, and so it's always, you know, um, Israel-Palestine has been a key focus of the work that AJDS has always done. But we've also done things, um, we're pretty active, I guess, around refugee stuff um, in Australia internationally and also um, Indigenous solidarity. We recently found the original um, sort of value statement of, of the organisation and had as the first thing nuclear disarmament. Um, so oh. it's kind of got this really long history of, yeah, being involved in leftist uh, yeah. stuff. How long has the organisation been around? So it's been around since 1984, mm. so it's in its 31st uh, year. Um, and so I've been involved since 2014 and sort of... Um, it's been a bit of a change in, in who's been involved and it's sort of starting to be a younger, more women, uh, more queers. And 
Um, and that's sort of brought changes, of course, in the kinds of politics of, of the group. So it's, uh, it's a group that very much um, holds a lot of uh, different perspectives within it. Awesome. So, um, so what is your relationship with the state of Israel um, in your experience in the Jewish diaspora? Like, how do you navigate with the establishment of Israel and its proclamation to be a Jewish state, the refuge for Jewish people worldwide, especially after the Holocaust? Yeah, that's that's huge questions um, and really good questions and really important. Um, I think the first thing I would say is this idea of diaspora um, is the first thing that I like to challenge. So I kind of think, you know, we often talk about diaspora as requiring a homeland, right? So Israel is set up as the homeland of the Jewish people. But why, you know, why is that the homeland? Why is that the centre of Jewish belonging? So that's what I like to think about instead is what if we think about diaspora as being anywhere that Jews live? You know, that's the Jewish diaspora. And it's about networks of connection between Jews in different places. It's about there being no one homeland, but about Jews being at home wherever they are. And that kind of, you know, builds on, I think, lots of different historical practices of Jewishness and Judaism. Um, but also there's, you know, lots of feminist and queer writers writing now talking about how we just really need to rethink uh, what role Israel plays in Jewish life um, and... Uh, how we can rethink Jewish belonging and Jewishness um, as being at home. Mm. So I think, you know, um, of course, you know, uh, before before the Holocaust, Zionism was a really marginal political movement. Um, but with the Holocaust and things obviously massively change. So, yeah, there is this, you know, founding document of saying that Israel is the home of the Jews, but, you know, these things only have... Um, purchase the more we believe in them I guess so I don't think Israel is the one homeland of the Jews I think some Jews make their home there and you know there is of course Jews who have li who lived there for generations right exactly. many of this Jewish presence there way predates the state um, but the state is very different to living somewhere and so what are your thoughts on the difference um, in social context of Jewish people like for example in the present day compared to let's say 50 years ago has there been any fundamental changes or shifts in Jewish identity or experience? Yeah, I think there's been lots of different changes. Um, some, in part, you know, I mean, if we're thinking, you know, sort of post-Holocaust world versus now, there's, of course, way more Jews, right? The Holocaust was um, obviously terrible, you know, you can't um, sort of overstate how bad that was for world Jewry. Um, but... Uh, so I think, you know, in terms, there's now more Jews and, and so there's more Jews, I guess, doing more things and so that uh, creates different opportunities um, and different possibilities. Jews are living in different kinds of places. So the creation of Israel, of course, um, the rise of Zionism, the fact that Zionism has this completely dominant place within world Jewry um, means that the ways in which Jews think of themselves is, has changed rapidly mm -hmm. over the last 50 years. I think also really importantly, um, Israel, you know, is very much about um, having lots of Jews in it. So that has really meant that, you know, Jews in North Africa and throughout the Middle East were really kind of encouraged or forced um, by Israel to move to Israel. So we've seen, you know, over the last 50 years that Jews throughout North Africa and the Middle East um, have been have have been forced to move and, and live um, as they kind of hinted at. You know that uh, Mizrahi and Sephardi Jews um, live much worse off lives um, in Israel than uh, Ashkenazi Jews or Jews from Eastern Europe. Yes, I was reading this book by uh, Tarek Fatah, um, the Jewish not my enemy. Um, probably leaving some critiques about Tarek in another time, but um, basically in this book he 
cites Bernard Fleuris, who is an Orientalist scholar, so, um, not exactly my favorite scholar, but he writes that anti-Semitism was actively encouraged by Western emissaries of various kinds, including counselor representative on one hand and priests and missionaries on the other. An example would be in 1840 uh, Damascus blood libel case in which the French con uh, consul actually backed the Capuchin monks who had accused the Jewish people of blood libel. Then you know, continue on to 1908 when the Young Turk movement, which is the Turkish nationalist movement, overthrew Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and they were accused of being supported by Jews. Uh, 1924, when Kemal Ataturk abolished the Ottoman structures, uh, he was suspected of being a secret Jew. 1869, first modern anti-Semitic literature in Arabic, you know, called the was a series of confessions by a Moldavian rabbi who had converted to Christianity, published by members of the Christian Ab Arab community in Beirut. 1890, Christian author Habib Faris published a book in Cairo called The Talmudic Human Sacrifices. And yet, before the arrival of Europeans, it seemed like no one has ever heard of such practices. And sadly, despite historically, Jews have been integral to Islamic life and just to the region as well. You know, we're talking about 18th century Baghdad, 10th century Spain, 12th century Cairo, 16th century Turkey. While they were being accused of being Christ killers, drinking Christian blood every Passover in Europe by the Christian counterparts. It seems like these attitudes are now rife and commonplace in the Middle East today. So um, could you perhaps comment on, well, first of all, what is anti-Semitism? And, you know, I guess you can attempt to define it. And do you think the nature of anti-Semitism today is different to that in the past, as well as the rise of anti-Semitism in Middle East? Yeah. So I guess, you know, anti-Semitism, I think, is uh, in some ways really hard to define. Um, I think lots of us approach it incredibly difficult, differently. Sorry. Um, so I think, you know, if I think of examples um, in, you know, in, in Melbourne or whatever, um, you know, there's things like, it's often things about it, Jewish invisibility, um, people thinking Jewishness is only about Israel, people not even being aware of Jewishness. And I was thinking this morning of this one example of, um, it was recently Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Um, and there were just all these events going on, actually, the, the like three events in the leftist community in Melbourne that I really wanted to go to, but they were on that day. Mm. And it was just, I think what annoyed me so much was, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily anti-Semitism and it's a bit of a banal example in some ways, but, you know, I just think people just had no idea. It's not that people made an active decision that we don't mind that Jews won't be able to come. It's that people had no idea that this was the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. So those kinds of erasures, I think, um, are a big part of anti-Semitism, um, in my reading of it, you know, in Melbourne. I think, you know, there's also the ways in which we think of, you know, Jewish power, um, Jews. I think people you know, still do think Jews control the world. I think people think <laughs> that Jews are wealthy. Um, you know, when people talk about, like, an Israel lobby, they think it's a Jewish lobby and they don't recognise, like, it's actually, like, arms manufacturers and Christian Zionists and, like, these are the leaders of it, like, the Jews who do it. And not actually the main people you know, contributing all the money people think, but people think of Jewish power. And I think those kinds of really long-lasting discourses are really hard to shift, um, particularly when there is a really visible Jewish Zionist lobby, right? Um, so I think, you know, in terms of, I mean, obviously anti-Semitism has shifted heaps um, uh, over time. I think, you know, we're also seeing the kind of rise of anti-Semitism, you know, as well, you know, there's the UPF in, in Melbourne. There's We have, like, genuine mm. fascists and Nazis on the streets, um, mm. and they're pretty, you know, they're Islamophobic, but they're also anti-Semitic. Mm. Um, I think in France it's, you know, it's really dangerous, and I've heard that from Jewish friends there. You know, they feel really under threat. Mm. Also by the fact that 
Jewish leaders there are saying and, and, you know, Israel saying, like, you need to leave, you need to come to Israel. It's like, no, they want to stay there and fight the anti-Semitism. I think throughout the Middle East, you know, there's obviously no doubt that with the rise of Israel, anti-Semitism has increased, right? Um, Obviously, you know, there's... Some sometimes it's political and sometimes it's anti-Semitic and you know and and I think um, it's important to recognise that and to recognise that in these long histories of Jewish-Muslim um, coexistence throughout the Middle East and North Africa, it's also never one hundred percent perfect, right? People never live totally well together. Um, yeah, so it, it's important, I think, not to um, romanticise a mm. blissful past, but also to yeah. I suppose that's just part of the human experience as well. Totally. So what are your thoughts on the conflation um, between anti-Zionism and, as being anti-Semitism? Like, does being anti-Jewish make you anti-Semitic? Because I, I from my understanding, Zionism is a bit of a spectrum. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think Zionism um, is lots of different things. Um, I think, you know, well, I think, you know, at a certain point in time, we could have talked about like a cultural Zionism, um, there's lots of people who have written about that. And I think, you know, of course, there's like a difference between a liberal Zionist and a settler who's, you know, in, in, right now, you know, like walking around the streets of Jerusalem saying death to the Arabs. And I think, you know, if we're talking about this, it's so great that we're talking about this today because it's just awful over there at the moment. And people, if people don't know what's going on at the moment in Jerusalem, but throughout, you know, Israel-Palestine, you really need to look it up and see. And it's just horrendous and who knows what's going to happen in the future. But um as for Zionism, you know, I think right now there is such a dominance of political Zionism and just a complete dominance of um, a really racist, um, exclusionary, awful Zionism. That said, so to be, you know, anti- anti-Zionist doesn't make you inherently anti-Semitic. I think at times people who are anti-Zionist are also anti-Semitic. I think if you have a problem with Zionism and no problem with other forms of nationalism, then, yeah, there's a hint of anti-Semitism. Zionism is a form of nationalism you know that's doing really awful stuff at the moment but Australian nationalism does really awful things too and you know like every form of nationalism is bad so if you to me like if you're anti-Zionist but not anti-nationalist in general then I would Mm. think you need to question your politics Um, but I think you know lots of us are not Zionist or anti-Zionist or take an active position uh, opposing Zionism and opposing the work that people do in Zionism's name and are not anti-Semitic in the slightest. Um, so could you perhaps um, touch on like the role and connection of um, Hasbara and pinkwashing of Israeli policies? Yeah, so Hasbara is like is the sort of Hebrew word for um, kind of basically propaganda, right? So it's really kind of coordinated. It's weird and creepy, I reckon. You know, like it's, it's, it's an actual thing that people do. They're like, they know they're doing Hasbara. Um, and so, of course, pinkwashing is a really important part of that, this idea that Israel is good for the gays and, you know, the gays are at home there. That is, you, know, you were saying in your interview with Sayed, like, Tel Aviv is the queer capital of the world. What does that mean? But, um, so, yeah, the ways, you know, that Israel uses um, its supposed acceptance or tolerance um, of uh, gays and queers to present itself as a good place um, and to say it's better. This is proof that it is the only democracy in the Middle East, as the tagline goes, you know, that people love to use. 
Um, and we know it's false, right? That say I gave those great examples of of the stabbings that have happened at, at pride marches in Israel. Um, and we know, you know, that that Palestinian um, queers are targeted because, you know, they can uh, by the Israeli security forces. You know that they will arrest them. They'll, you know, they'll they'll threaten to expose them to out them um, for for queers who aren't out. And and that's you know like uh, if if they don't help the security forces, so they do these really awful things and they use I think um, homosexuality as kind of a bargaining tool um, for them. Mm. Um, I think, you know, to make a claim that you're good in one area and that's an excuse that makes you okay even though you continue to occupy, it's just, you know, it's so absurd to me. Like, as though an occupation's okay because even if you are good for local gays, like, as though that makes it okay. Like, it's just a balance sheet that we all add up. Um, and as long as you're doing enough good things, then that's okay. It's so ridiculous. Right, thank you. Thank you for... Um, taking your time and being with us um, on our show. Um, we might take a quick break before continuing on. Thanks for having me. Thank mm -hmm. you. Facing the the end of the destruction of the Palestinian people by the Israeli forces. Why Gender is a group for trans and gender queer questioning young people and friends. Why Gender runs social events and have monthly meetings in the city. Check us out on Facebook or see why G E N D E R dot com for more info. Why G E N D E R dot com. Welcome back to Querying the Air. Um, the song that I was just played there was Lazam Nadgar by Shadi Mansour and Omar Fandom, featuring the, the voice of the late Giuliano Mirkemis, a Palestinian actor, director, and activist. Cool. Um, so I'm just going to read a bit about um, some of the stuff that's been happening lately, specifically about um, the Somalian refugee known by the pseudonym Abian. Um, who was also a rape survivor who was deported back to Nauru. So I'm just going to read some quotes um, from a few different sources and first of all from an article, Australia secretly flies pregnant refugee out of country before hearing, published in The Guardian. So the federal government has secretly flown a pregnant refugee out of Australia to escape a court injunction, chartering a jet to take her back to Nauru in the detention centre where she was raped. Um, and yet, in an effort, in an extraordinary effort that appears to be an attempt to escape the reach of the Australian courts, the government on Friday swiftly moved the 23-year-old Somalian, who was pregnant as a result of being raped on Nauru, from Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney. Abian, who was, was brought to Australia on Sunday evening and held at Villawood Detention Centre, she told friends and advocates she feared being sent back to Nauru. I cannot go back to where this happened to me. I cannot go back to where I was raped. What happened to me there in Nauru is what happened to me, is what, sorry, caused me to run away from Somalia. What happened to me in Somalia is what happened to me there in Nauru, Abian said. And yeah, there was also um, 
a spokesperson from Refugee Action Coalition, Ian Rentoul, who who said that the Prime Minister's statement in regards to this um, is just not true. At, um, at no point did Abiyan refuse or decline to have a termination. Um, Rintoul said he had spoken to Abiyan on Friday night and she indicated she wanted to postpone her decision, not change it, because she wanted to discuss the decision with doctors but had been denied counselling and an interpreter. All she did say was that she would tell them tomorrow or the day after and on that basis it seems they've removed her. It's very clear, said Rintoul, that she was urgently removed from Australia quite deliberately and consciously to avoid there being any possible review of the decision to remove her. Um, yeah, and also a Facebook post was made on the October 16th by RISE, refugee survivors and ex-detainees. Um, so, yeah, it also quotes from the Guardian article, Australian government swiftly deports Somali rape survivor back towards Nauru without giving an opportunity to have abortion, talk to her lawyer and speak to her counsellor. Her lawyer only found out that she had already today had her own sorry her lawyer only found out that she had already been secretly deported out of Australia when he went today to court to file an injunction to stop the deport the deportation. The co- conduct of the Commonwealth in effectively ab- abducting our client before we could speak to her or bring the matter to the court is astounding. I don't think there's been a court case like this since the Petrov affair. In acting for Abion, Shine lawyers took advice from leading women psychiatrists and obstetricians. Um, Newhouse said, and our correspondence with the Commonwealth has been based on that. All we ask the Commonwealth to do is to be fit for the operation, to be counselled about the sexual assault and the pregnancy and to understand the operation so that she could give fully informed consent. So that was the statement from Rise. And I just wanted to quickly talk about that yeah it's def this is a huge feminist issue um it's dealing with women who are already invisibilized marginalized um at very high risk of gendered violence um the whistleblower liz thompson um who was at Nauru, described yeah the conditions there as the active creation of horror to do- to secure deterrence so it's just a it's a incredibly um it's an incredibly dangerous environment for women and um basically if the government and if people are concerned about feminist issues and stopping gendered violence then in my opinion the best way to go about it would be to close down the detention centers so yeah um we're going to go to a song now um, the song is called Revolution by Arrested Development. <laughs> On this record, understand, this is for all of my ancestors who were raped, who were killed and hung because of their plight for freedom and for dignity. They died for me and they died for you. This is for them to know that yes, even today, In 1992, we are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.
Awesome, you're back um, live on Curing the Earth. Um, I'm just going to quickly plug some events. Um, so, first of all, um, which isn't first of all in Chronology Quarter, but there's this cool event coming up called Mash Multinationals Out. Um, Latin America, Australia and Asia Pacific's um, Solidarity Gathering slash Conference. Um, it's organised by the organisation, I think, Lasnet a really good organization and friends of mine, November 14th to 15th, um, um, 10 a.m. it says to 5 p.m., 115 Queensbury Street, Carlton. And the tagline on the beautiful picture has of an old woman um, sticking, giving the finger to, I guess, to multinational corporations is building bridges and global resistance to multinational corporations. Um, it's Lasnet or the... The conference says um, our purpose is coming together to educate ourselves and one another. I, our idea is to build new global models of solidarity to face the global corporate tyranny. And a very exciting event that's coming up this weekend, next weekend, is Mess the West. Um, Melbourne DIY Fest, October 22 to October 25th. Um, and I'll just read one of the, the posts they did quickly workshops update so they got stuff like kombucha antifa so drawing on the growing visibility of extreme right in australia members of melbourne's autonomous networks present a range of protest skills and safety techniques which is really important and relevant <laughs> to today's show first nations liberation slash decolonization details to be announced home brewing basic home brewing basic knots fence jumping vegan cooking screen printing Finds advice on how to deal with basic infringement notices, very important. Mm. Beekeeping um, will happen in sunshine. Um, and it's for the beekeeping, it's essential that you register by emailing girlsradioffensive at riseup.net, another 3CL story, yay. Welding, um, yeah, so it should be really great. They have some parties too, and those dates are going there October 22 to October 25, West Side. Is there a Facebook page? Um, yeah, there's yeah. a Facebook page you can search called Mess the West awesome. DIY Fest. So there's some plugs. All right, um, just wanted to thank thank you, um, Geordie Silverstein for again joining us on studio. It was a pleasure to have you. And... Uh, and Tan Hung also for the panelling, oh, amazingly. Yeah, no Hopefully we'll be able to do it ourselves <laughs> no, next it was, time. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure <laughs> to have um, to listen to the interviews that you did and and chat with Geordie as well. So thank you again, Geordie, for coming in. Thanks for having me. No probs. Um, the next song we're going to go out with is a song by No Name Gypsy called Paradise. It's lovely. <laughs> Tony the tiger told me not to lie I'm brain dead, I'm too high I drifted to the